Thank you, Hill Sisters. Appreciate that music ministry. Well, it's good to see everybody this morning, and obviously it's Father's Day, so we want to wish everybody, all the dads, a happy Father's Day, and appreciate Noah leading us in a time where we can worship and praise our Heavenly Father, uh, as we are reminded to do in the book of Ephesians. Well, I want to um, deliver a Father's Day message, but I want to start it out right, and that is with a little bit of humor, because parenting... As grueling as it can be and demanding as it can be, there's always humor to be found. Uh, One Ray Romano, the comedian, said having children's like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, and there's a lot of throwing up. (laughs) Well, here's here's, uh, some comparisons of what fathers did in the 1900s and then what you might hear today. Uh, I think probably the only one here that would know what it was like in the 1900s would be Corky. But uh, So in the 1900s, if a father put a roof over his family's head, he was a success. Today it takes a roof, deck, pool, and four-car garage, and that's just the vacation home. So in 1900, a father waited for the doctor to tell him when the baby arrived. Today, a father must wear a smock, know how to breathe, make sure film is in the video camera. In 1900, fathers could count on children to join the family business. Today, fathers pray their kids will soon come home from college long enough to teach them how to work the computer and the VCR. In the 1900s, fathers shook their children gently and whispered, wake up, it's time for school. Today, kids shake their fathers violently at 4 a.m. shouting, wake up, it's time for hockey practice. In 1900, a father came home from work to find his wife and children at the supper table. Today, a father comes home to a note. Jimmy's at baseball, Cindy's at gymnastics, I'm at the gym, pizza's in the refrigerator. In the 1900s, a Father's Day gift would be a hand tool. Today, he'll get a digital organizer. So here's one more, and this is my favorite little story. A pastor explained how Saturday was a day to get things done around their house because of work, family, and church responsibilities. Just a few weeks ago, he and his youngest son, Jeff, who was six years old, had just finished mowing the lawn and were putting things away. The pastor thought this would be a terrific opportunity to rest and spend a few minutes with Jeff. So the two of them crawled up on the family's trampoline and gazed up into the blue sky. And with a puzzled look, Jeff turned and asked, Dad, why are we here? Well, the pastor thought this would be great teaching opportunity, so he explained how we're children of our Heavenly Father and how He has sent us here because He loves us and He wants us to experience the things that He's created for us and how He wants to serve He wants us to serve one another and to learn and to grow and to develop the qualities that will allow us to return to live with him someday. And the father paused and asked if that had answered his question. And Jeff responded, not really. Hmm. Pastor began to think how else he might be able to answer the question when Jeff asked again, Dad, why are we here? Weren't we supposed to pick mom up an hour ago? 
<clears throat> so I want to, um, I have, want to kind of begin with two things. One is I've actually, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to split this message into two. As I was reviewing the material this morning, uh, it just seemed like it was trying to pack too much in at one time. So um, that's my first thing I want to share with you. So this actually will be a part two next week. We'll do the Father's Day message as well. And that leads me into the second thing I wanted to say, and that is the reason it will take more time, I think, is because uh, fatherhood, motherhood, the family is actually more complicated these days. It's more complicated because of the cultural shift that's taken place. And we, we, we can't use terminology, terminology like we used to, and everybody's just automatically on the same page. And so I wanted to kind of introduce the idea and, um, you know, maybe some of the changes that have taken place. I've been a pastor for, I'm going on 20 years now. And when I first began to pastor, things like motherhood and fatherhood, it was just understood as a church, that's what you loved and celebrated because that's what is in God's holy word. And we believe uh, scripture gives us the vision for life. And, and now there's so much competition in the world, in the realm of ideas of what it even means uh, to be a man, to be a woman. The roles are, are challenged. We're, we're just being pushed from every direction. And yeah, and, and it wears down even on believers. Uh, we are exposed to so many different things that are not biblical. Uh, sometimes we get caught up in fighting for causes that sound good, but turn out to be not so good for the church or for the glory of God. It's gotten complicated, quite frankly and honestly. It's complicated for me as a pastor because I, I get a text and I'm excited what God has to say and, and I'm on board with that as, as a believer um, and I want to celebrate that. And yet I know that there's some pushback in our culture. I know that there has been a lot of pain because of, say, uh, motherhood or fatherhood or, or abuse of roles and so forth. And so it kind of honestly puts me in a, in a hard place. And I know that it puts you in a hard place because I know that you want to honor God. I know that you're striving in your pilgrimage uh, to do what's right. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. And you're exposed to the same ideas and, and pressures from culture and from media as I am. And sometimes it, it kind of knocks us off our stance. And this morning we were encouraged in Galatians to stand firm. And the same author of Galatians, the Apostle Paul, gave the same exhortation to, to the Corinthians. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labors in the Lord are not in vain. So I think that um, there's just a lot of things. It's not as simple as it used to be. There's a lot of things uh, that we have to take into consideration. Uh, we live in a culture where, as we say, as a church wants to celebrate these kind of things. And by the way, we will. Um, but we live in a culture that really pushes back. And, and things that we want to celebrate are, are now being called abusive. Uh, being called like toxic masculinity. These kind of things affect the whole package of God's vision of the family and 
motherhood and fatherhood and parenting and so forth. It's, it's all tied together because God's creation is all tied together. And so I, wanna, I want us to think a little bit about the, the teachings of Scripture and what we are being kind of pushed or pressured into in one sense or even just challenged. There's nothing wrong with being challenged in our faith and our beliefs. Uh, so I want to take a couple Sundays to preach a Father's Day message. By the way, we'll be in Psalm 128. If you want to turn your Bibles there, I'll read that in a little bit. But um, So I do want to preach it, but it's not without fear or trepidation because I want to recognize also that there have been abuses in fatherhood. There, there have been a bad family situations. There's, there has been a lot of pain. So I don't want to just, uh, with, with rosy glasses, paint this picture as if there's no negative side to that. Uh, we, we, we're all capable of bringing our own destruction into, say, a family situation. Not just fathers. Mothers, too. Uh, mothers can, women can manipulate. Uh, children can manipulate and abuse in different ways where God gives us gifts, He gives us powers, and we can use them for His good and His glory, or we can use them for evil. The popular thing to do, I think, today is to demean the very things that I'm going to talk about this morning, uh, to demonize these things. Um, and in particular, men are made to feel guilty for exercising any kind of authority or leadership. It's just not culturally acceptable anymore. So that's, these are the kind of things that we're, we're up against. And they do happen. You know, one of the things that our culture is basically saying to men is to stop being manly. And God gives us a definition of manhood, and it's not always exactly what sometimes we hear the church define it as. But it's in there, it's in God's Word, and it's accurate. And uh, I, I think we're kind of, we're, we're being taught to, to not be manly because of all of the negative impact manhood has had on society and the world. And we're being taught to be more like women, more sensitive, um, to not exercise our leadership. So I think that abuses in biblical manhood, absolutely, or in any abuse, it needs to be called out. Absolutely needs to be called out. But at the same time, we have to have a place to start. We need to have some kind of understanding so that we aren't just pushed over by a little, a little challenge or a little bit of pressure from the culture. We want to know that we're standing firm in something, that we're doing the right thing as believers. And that's what I think this psalm will help us to do in the next couple weeks, is to give us... I know that in my personal study of it as a, as a man and as a father, I was encouraged and, and it brought clarity to my thinking about my role as a, as a husband, as a father, and as a leader, and as a man. So it, it brought me back to, I guess, the roots, you might say, of God's vision for these things. So, even though it may not be popular, and I know that there's baggage in, into these things, uh, the roles of motherhood and 
manhood and, and so forth. Um, I'm going to forge ahead. And I want to also say that I don't agree with the position of the culture. I take a scriptural position. And I'll go so far as to say, I think that to withdraw from biblical manhood and to withdraw from God's vision of the family and fatherhood, and that would include the, the father as the head of the house and the leader, I think it's, it's a terrible decision. And it's a terrible direction. And I think that it will cause even more harm and destruction in our society to take that stance and, and to follow that idea that what we have in the family structure is actually what's harming society. I think we just, we, we may make mistakes, but the way we correct society or help society is just by doing a better job at it by the grace and the power of God. It's not by abandoning, abandoning the vision that God has for family and coming up with our own that is supposed to really help us as a society. If you look at all the... You can just look at any study in sociology. It doesn't matter what faith this person is. And if they're objective and looking at the, the proper facts, every one of them will tell you that the main source of today's problems or society's problems is the breakdown of the family. And, and I read that, I read this from secular people, from agnostics, and yet from the same kind of intelligentsia, the idea is, or, or the message is that we need to dismantle the family. And yet, on the other side, it's, well, the problem with society is that the family is being dismantled. We're, we're getting all these voices, and it's so inconsistent, it's hard to, to know, you know what's, what is up and down. But I just... I'm so grateful for God's word. I'm so grateful that even though there's a thousand voices out there, there's just one that I need to tune into. There's, there's that one voice, the voice of God, that will bring my heart and my soul, the, the assurance, and as a man, the confidence I need to fulfill my role. So, I guess the point of all this is that there is a specific way that the family operates. There are specific things and roles that men, fathers, can fulfill in a way that honors God and in a way that will bless him, his family, and as a result, the ripple effect will be a blessing to the society. Did you know that depending on the ethnicity, there are... Well, in some groups, there are over 50% of children. Uh, this is in our society. This is in our country, not the world, but in our country or more that have never had the privilege of saying dad. They haven't known their dad. They don't. They, they have obviously a biological father, but they haven't uttered the words to an individual face-to-face dad identified a person that is so that's so sad to me and there's there's not that influence of the father something's missing and i think when we break these things down because we're created 
to thrive under these atmospheres, then we, it creates a vacuum and we're looking for other ways to fulfill the needs that we were created with. And we don't always turn into the right, to the right places, to the right things, to the right people or powers or wisdom to give us the comfort and the assurance that we need. The breakdown can take place from any direction. It's not just moms or dads. It can be the kids, too. I was a rebellious kid. I know that, uh, that I brought uh, disharmony and disruption and kept my, my parents up at night wondering where I was and was I coming home and those kind of things. And Scripture tells the, the kids, honor your mother and father. This, this is right in the Lord, and it's a commandment with a promise that it may go well with you. There, there, you know, when you, when you fit into God's laws and commands and rules and boundaries that he sets for us, it's a good thing. And um, sure, there's persecution for standing for it, but it's a good thing because we're walking in the ways of God. So I just want to share these things with you. It's the world that we live in today. Um, I'm kind of surprised that... I guess I shouldn't be, but I'm, I'm of that age now where I can actually look back and see. I've been around long enough to see cultural shifts. That makes me feel really old. Uh, but seeing the different fads and so forth. But our text today will give us hope. It'll give us help, and I think it'll give us at least a little bit of clarity. And where are we today as families, as mothers, as fathers, and and, and the role of parenting and so forth. So I want to read Psalm 128. And I've entitled this message, When Men Fear God. Now I want to say again that because I'm breaking it into two parts, I'm going to speak more to everyone today and then I'll dial in more on fathers next week. Because the psalm starts with addressing everybody. So let's look at God's word. Blessed is everyone who fears The Lord who walks in his ways, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Now, this is a psalm. We looked at Psalm 127 for Mother's Day, and this is how I came upon 128 for Father's Day. I happened to read the next one. I thought, well, there's a Father's Day message right there. These are songs of ascent, which means it's, these are the praise songs that the Israelites sang on their way to worship God in their visit of Jerusalem to go into the temple. They would sing these psalms. There's a lot of different kinds of psalms. This is a, a didactic psalm, meaning it's you, you sing it and it teaches you something because it's God's revelation for us. So this is giving us a teaching about life, about family, and in particular about men or fathers. Psalm 127, it kind of follows in that same realm. If you remember, Psalm 127 is, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. The idea is that we can do things in life 
And we may have some rewards or we may have setbacks, but if God's not in it, it's a whole different thing. Like, it needs to be, unless the, build, the Lord builds the house, meaning if we're not building our families by trusting in God and that what he says is true, if we're not doing it to honor him, then it's done in vain, he says. It's, it's, it doesn't count in that sense because God's not in it. Uh, well, the greatest command, the first command, is love God with all your heart. We talked a lot about the law in Galatians. But keeping in mind that the biggest command is it's about relationship. It's about loving this incredible being, God. So this psalm kind of carries in that theme. It's a big picture of life. Most of today's uh, sermon will be pointed at the family as a whole again because it speaks to all of us. And what does it say? It gives us an exhortation. It tells us something that, that we should do, and, and we can receive something. So God talks about a blessing. There's a blessing that comes for those that fear God and walk in his ways. So I want to concentrate on that for a little while, the two crucial words here that we hear all the time, but I don't want us to take them for granted because they're, they're so frequently mentioned by God in Scripture, they help us to grasp this. So the first is um, blessing. Why is it a big deal? Why would anybody even care about God's blessing? Because God's blessing is that, that divine entity that comes from a personal God that fills our hearts and souls. God's blessing is the very thing we, we need to experience any kind of um, sensation or, or depth to life and our happiness. Another, another word for it is happy is the man or blessed is the man. And so what makes us happy is God in our lives. That's the main thing. For, for this, this God who has revealed himself as merciful, loving, compassionate, he treats us like a father, a good father. He's the standard of fatherhood, by the way. And he, he brings all of his attributes into our lives on a personal basis. The wisdom we need, the comfort we need. And so that's a blessing to us. We're, we're created to thrive off of these things. The blessing he brings, brings to us is primarily internal. But it can also be external. God is glad to, to bless us consequentially that he's glad to bless us materially at times as a matter of fact this man will enjoy the work of his hands that's a material blessing lots of crops lots of produce say so maybe a bigger check that is part of god's way that he loves us but the main thing is that above all is the internal blessing of that relationship because we know god is good and when we have god then, then life is good just in and of itself because we have God. How do we obtain this blessing? Well, we fear. It's another thing that we, 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 we mentioned this in Sunday school. I heard the word come up many times. Fear 
God. Fear God. What does it mean to fear God? Well, we know it has to do with reverence and all because he's so awesome. Our God is an awesome God. So it has to do reverence and all. We're just astounded at his presence and how weighty and glorious he is. But it also has an element that a lot of times gets left out, and that is the element of terror. Because we often want to picture God as just the, the loving God who wants to sweep us, in his, us up in his arms, and that's true. But that's not the whole picture. He's a terrifying God. I like how C.S. Lewis put it on children's terms when he was talking about Aslan. Here's this majestic beast, the king of the jungle. And, and like you think, you sh- children shouldn't be hugging this fierce creature around the neck and so forth. And is he safe? And the answer was, of course he's not safe. So there's always that element in here. Yes, he, he's loving. He's going to lead us and guide us. But there is an or else to this God as well. There is an element of fear, of terror. But it's not the kind of terror that wants us to run away from God and fear like there's no way he can ever be forced. It's the kind of terror that causes us to run into his arms for salvation. The kind of terror that... Inna- opens our eyes to the reality that he is what we need and we're only safe in his arms. To run anywhere else only puts us in further danger. How do we know that we're on the right track in our fear to God? Well, because we, we walk in his ways. That's the other part. It's those who fear God and walk in his way so we know we're fearing him when we respect him and honor him enough and fear him enough, the or else part, to actually do what he says. The reverence is, you're a lot smarter than I am. You're God. And if this is what you bring into my life, who am I to question that? I respect it. It's true. It's trustworthy. I'm going to live by it. And so there's the practical hands-on or boots-on-the-ground evidence of our lives that are fearing God. So God has ways. He has paths. He has boundaries. There's lines drawn. God writes the rules of life. And, And we are to walk in those To love him enough, to fear him enough, to respect him enough, to walk in those. It's that path. It's that way. Uh, The new Christians in the Gospels, it was called the way. Because Christianity is literally a way of all of life. It's a totality from the time we go to bed, we wake up, it's everything in between. We honor God in all that we do. God's blueprints and his regulations and his systems and all of creation. There's opportunity to love him and live for him in every single thing we do. Not just on Sundays, any rituals or symbols that we have here, but on the way to church, on the way home church from church and everything in between.
So the path that we're walking will take us places. So I read this and I think, am I, am I walking the right path? Jesus has something to say about that in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. There's lots of ways and paths in life that we can take. Lots of opportunities and signs that will beckon us. Follow me. Follow after this. And then there's God's ways. So, this in the context of family. I think gives us a great starting point. Because if we if we think the family is broken, needs repair, it's unhealthy, whatever we may think of it, then what this does is this gives us a tremendous starting point on the road to correction, on the road to that blessing, on the road to health and satisfaction, fulfillment. And the starting point for anybody in the family, whether it's mom or dad, or the oldest child or the youngest child is what? Fear God. Fear God, which means, in essence, put God first. Or, in essence, you could say, take God seriously. I heard one pastor say that's what it means to fear God. Take Him seriously. And when we begin to take God seriously, things change because we alter our priorities. We make changes in the way we, we act, in the way we think, in the way we feel, in the way that we relate to one another. So it's putting God first in all things. We begin to do that and our family life will change for the better. In Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Putting God first, is it's, it sounds so simple and yet you, we can't skip that step or we can't get from point A to point B. We have to we have to trust him and, and give our lives to him and make adjustments. So in essence, by looking at this first verse, rather than say starting with dad or, or even mom, we start with what? We start with ourselves. The starting point in the family life is we start with ourselves. We begin to be, say, the man or the woman or the child that God instructs us to be, that God calls us out to be, that God created us to be. We start there. And then instead of bringing misery to our family in our rebellion or failure to walk in his ways, we bring peace and joy. It's a good garden. It's a good place for growth. When you have family members that are putting God first. And a lot of times kids get off the hook. Kids get off the hook. Not mom and dad take all the responsibility. But this is for kids too. You put God first. It's so easy to jump on the bandwagon of pointing fingers at everybody else. And just... There, in the garden, one of the first sins was blame shifting. Yeah, if you hadn't given me that woman, Lord, all this would have been turned out different. We love in our sin nature to blame 
shift and our and our society and culture gives us a lot of fodder for that. It's everybody else's fault. And then we have then we can get concentrated on how bad things are. This happens to us in, in Christendom. It's it's easy to join the voices with all the doomsdayers. And we talk about how broken the family is and how our nation is going to hell in a in a in a handbasket and and there's a lot of pain out there and there is brokenness, but that doesn't fix things. Or blaming other people doesn't get us in a better place. Or reminding ourselves repetitively how bad things are doesn't get us in a better place. What gets us in a better place? Put God first. Fear God. Make the changes that we need. Line ourselves up with the reveal God, the, the reveal word that God has giving us. Complaining makes us maybe feel a little better, but it doesn't change anything. It's not a remedy. God doesn't say, blessed is the man that complains and doesn't do a thing. So the path to fixing what is broken is to take personal responsibility to fear God, to know God, and this extends to every member of the family. The or else. Take God seriously. Walk in his ways. So if we look anywhere other than God's word to understand ourselves and our roles, we may be in for a headache and a heartache and a rough time. God has his ways. I was, I'm very, very blessed and fortunate enough to uh, be raised in a Christian home. And so my dad structured our household life based on what he believed was honoring to the Lord. There were rules, lots of rules in our house, uh, more than I cared for as a kid. But I look back and I think, wow, my parents didn't have as many rules as Lisa and I had for our kids. But there were rules enough. If you, if you cross those rules, there were consequences. So my mom was a stay-at-home mom. For the most part, she helped in the, in the family business and, and did some other things. But she was there most of the time, which means that she was the main disciplinarian because she was the one that was closest to whoever was disobeying. And I guess her, her, um, her discipline implement of choice, I'm not trying to figure out what to call it, was usually like a fly swatter or um, a Hot Wheel track. If you were raised in the 70s, mine were orange about this long and they were plastic. And so it gave her a little extended reach because we would try to run from her when we saw the spanking coming. So she liked that Hot Wheel track and they were always all over the place because there were nine of us in the, in the house at one time. But um, if we dis- disrespected mom repetitively or did something really bad, and I don't know what that would be. I can't think anything right now. Uh, maybe we, we just spoke disrespectfully or, or just maybe we picked on each other. We're really mean anyway. It elevated to a point 
where she would stop disciplining and say, you just have to wait till your father gets home. And when she said that, that just took it to a whole new level of fear. Because, you know, mom was constantly spanking or, or the stern warnings and different things like that with all the kids running around. It was constant correction. But dad was at work, and when dad got home... Dad, uh, he meant business because he, he didn't discipline us all day. So he took it serious, was methodical about it. And um, you knew you were in big trouble. Uh, you knew there was going to be some serious pain involved, not just like barely got me because I outran you kind of thing. And part of the, uh, the fear and the punishment was waiting for Dad to get home. Oh. Man, it wasn't just that you knew it was coming, but then you had to wait for it. And my dad disciplined either with his bare hand when we were smaller or his fraternity, wooden fraternity paddle. Uh, either way, it was bad news. Either way, it was red bottoms and lots of tears. So there were two things that were extremely painful to me personally, I can't speak for the rest of the family, but I could almost guarantee if you were get my siblings together, they'd all be doing this. But So it was the, the, the corporal punishment and the pain to begin with the spanking. The punishment and pain, punishment had to fit the crime. Dad didn't, he didn't overpunish us and he didn't punish us in anger. He was a great dad and every spanking I ever got I deserved. Just put that out there right now. There was no abuse in my family. I had it coming to me every time. So that, um, that pain. But then there was the other thing that dad did that was worse to me. And it was the lecture. It was the, it was the disappointment in his eyes. He, you saw the sadness. He didn't want to do this. He didn't want to have to spank. And then, then just his... He would always bring the moral lesson into it. And there was the disappointment there that, that I had failed, that I broke a household rule. It didn't need to be like this, but this is what you did. And that tore me up all, more, honestly. I would have taken the, the physical spankings 10 to 1 that from the lecture because I really respected my dad. And then I get not just... It, then I get the disappointment of failing the person that I, at that point in my life, honored the most and respected the most. Most, I mean, you know, dads are heroes to their kids. That was so hard. And it's that idea of fear and respect or else. It was a loving act for my father to do that. So there's two painful things in it had to do with the breaking of the relationship. It wasn't just a cold discipline. It was a personal offense, and it disrupted the harmony of the household. And he would, you know, I was reminded that I caused hardship for mom. And you know how much mom does for you. So it was just not a good situation. It was way easier to obey. And um, I learned that lesson of obedience when I was about 19 and became a Christian. Unfortunately, I didn't learn it when I was still a child. It didn't sink in. 
The command to fear God is given in Scripture over 300 times. I mean, there's just this message there. We need to put God first in everything that we do. If God's not our center, we, we get out of orbit. The sense of gravity and orient, orientation is off. God writes the rules to the world. So I think this psalm helps us properly think about family and, and, and putting God as the king, putting God at the highest place of elevation. And the man that does that, then he sits down at the table. He sits down at the table and he has this, it's an agrarian picture that God gives us. It's a wonderful view. Of course, that's an agrarian culture there. When things grow, you get to eat and you get to eat well. But his wife's like a vine. It's, it's, it's fruit, it's abundance, it's health, it's, it's fertile uh, soil, it's, it's assurance of being cared for. And then you have little olive shoots. We'll get into all those. But think about how creative can you be? What is God trying to communicate by describing the women as fruitful vines and the kids as olive shoots? Why would that be a blessing to this man? We'll have to figure that out if you don't already know. But it's a beautiful view of home life. You know, if our view of home life comes from our friends only, uh, we could be in trouble. Because our friends don't always give us the best advice. If our view of home life comes from what we were raised in, we might be in trouble. Because we may have been raised with a skewed view. And we might bring that into our homes that we create. If it comes from the media, we're really in trouble. Because that's a skewed view. I remember um, growing up, it, the shows on TV still had a reverence for family, most of them. You know, and I, I was limited in what I could watch, but it was the Waltons and Little House on the Prairie, and there's always lessons in there, you know, good lessons. Or Bonanza, the boys, the brothers, the Cartwrights, they took up for each other. They sat around the family table and shared a meal together. Those kind of things. There was a, a reverence there. The, the specific roles were laid out for moms and dads and kids and so forth. So it was reinforced. Today's media, I don't even, I can't even imagine. I don't watch TV, but I can't imagine what's out there. I mean, what do kids see? Is, it, is this whole idea of family and motherhood and fatherhood reinforced at all? Or is it completely torn down. So overall, anywhere other than Scripture, you're not going to get the best view or picture of family life. And then we have this song. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Kind of reminds me of the decision that Joshua had to make when they crossed the river in the promised land. As for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. You know, dads, that's the kind of decision we have to make constantly because we're pulled in different directions. And we're going to have to get back to Scripture. Nope. This is what we're going to do, and here's why we're going to do it. Because God's a smart God, 
and God looks after us, his ways are rewarding. And so they can do that. Another family can do this. But this is what we are going to do. This is our household. We're going to fear God and put God first. I want to close with a, with a story. Um, my dad, will, he passed away. It'll be two years in July. I had an exceptional dad. And uh, the older I get, the more... It's, it's strange how it works, but the older I get, the more I realize how exceptional my dad was. So uh, I was a rebel, and I don't say that in pride and fun. It, it, was, it brought a lot of hardship to my family. Um, and one time I got arrested as a teenager, and I had been arrested before. Uh, you know, you get brought down to the station for doing bad things, and then you get to call, and your parents come and get you. It was always Dad that came and got me. Well, one time, these things kind of added up, and I had to go to court. I was in big trouble, uh, possibly facing, like, reformatory school. Um, so my dad hired a lawyer, and we went to court. And um, I was, I think I just turned 16. And the judge was asking my father some questions. I guess he wanted to know a little about a little bit about him. And he said, uh, uh, and Mr. Montagna, how many children do you have? And he said, nine children, Your Honor. And this is the only one that has been in court? Yes, Your Honor. He said, my hat's off to you to raise nine kids. And only this one was the rotten one. God had another plan for me. But he that was dad. And this is a judge, juvenile. He's used to the brokenness. He's used to all the failure and, and, and the unhealthiness. And here's a, a dad that there was just one that went this direction, that far in that direction. That was a very honorable thing that impressed the judge. And here I am waiting to get sentenced wondering what, what's going to happen. And I, 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 I picked up on the blessing that it was. I realized the kind of dad I had that when the judge in the courtroom <coughs> praises him and acknowledges him, it's a powerful thing that a, an influence that fathers have on their sons. May God bless the preaching of this word this morning. Amen.